Hello, this is Ekaterina Howard. And Veronica de Michelis. This is the third and last episode of our pre-conference series, where we will be interviewing presenters scheduled for Saturday, the last day of the ATA conference. So, Veronica, which session are you looking forward to? And I do hope it is mine. It is yours. Yes, I was oh. going to say, I look forward to your session, um, Just a Freelancer, What Other Industries Can Teach Us, because I am very curious. I know we can learn a lot from other industries, and I want to hear what you found out and um, your tips. What about you? Well, I'm looking forward to the presentation. I know I will not be able to attend because it's scheduled at the same time slot. The localization in Silicon Valley, I already it just sounds really fascinating and i really wish we could have interviewed georgina before the conference didn't work out unfortunately yes hopefully we'll be able to meet and talk to her during the conference and maybe record um, a podcast with her and to our listeners if you would like to volunteer and record some interviews for us during the conference or uh, review some of the sessions please reach out My name is Mike Collins. Uh, I am an ATA certified translator from German to English and Russian to English. I have a master's degree in Slavic linguistics. I've been translating since the mid-1980s and uh, ran a translation agency for about 20 years uh, and became a freelancer in 2012. Uh, so uh, I went from uh, doing what I really love, which is translation and editing about 25% of the time to 100% of the time. So uh, uh, I love my job. But uh, during that time, I have uh, gathered a lot of uh, editing and translation experience over the last 30 years. So that's, uh, uh, that's my background. And during your ATA session, you'll be talking about verbing and a way to better translation. Yes. And this came about, uh, it's actually a piggyback on an earlier presentation that I did in 2009 in New York. And it was called Verbing Your Way to a Better Translation. This new, uh, the, the presentation in New Orleans will be Son of Verbing. Uh, and it's very similar to the previous one. Uh, since that was given nine years ago, I don't expect there will be many uh, repeat customers this time. Uh, but nevertheless, the topics that I'm going to address uh, remain the same. And uh, at that time, and also with the uh, current presentation, my goal as a presenter was to give uh, beginner to intermediate translators some tips on a systematic way to look at how they translate. I find uh, or have found over the years that most, uh, most experienced translators uh, who have been doing this for a while and are good at what they do already, already use these techniques, so they might not find my presentation all that helpful, although... Uh, maybe the systematic approach uh, would be a little more useful to them. But uh, I started uh, that presentation off uh, with this premise, and this premise was that you can have a semantically and grammatically correct translation that still fails because it distracts the reader from the message or reads stiffly enough that the reader begins to question the text in general. So uh, the goal with verbing, and the reason I use this word verbing uh, is it, it it in and of itself demonstrates the technique that I would like to uh, pass over to uh, my attendees. And that is that English is very verb 
heavy. We like to use verbs. We're very uh, sort of an action-oriented language, a very U.S. English especially, a very informal language. And um, whereas uh, I work, uh, I work in about uh, eight or nine languages to English, and uh, I have seen in all of them that they tend to be very noun-heavy, especially in more formal documents. That they will use the uh, nominalized versions of um, words, where English will simply use the verb. And it's a good technique, uh, a good thing to have in mind as a translator as you're translating, not to be. Um, uh, not to be captured by the source language. Uh, when you see a noun uh, translating it as a noun, you see a verb translating it as a verb, you're really translating it at the, at the word level and not the sentence level. And that frequently results in awkward sounding target texts. And just for an example, um, uh, we're not really talking specifically about marketing language here, because marketing language is an extreme example. But if you think about it, you think about most English marketing texts are, are very, very informal, as opposed to what you might see in, say, Russian or, or German, especially, uh, or other languages, uh, uh, the European languages that, that I'm familiar with. And uh, in, in those cases, uh, the presentation tends to be more formal, tends to be more like from an expert pr perspective, whereas in the U.S., uh, not a, we want to convince you of our expertise, but we also want to be your buddy. So the language uh, tends to be very informal. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, I use examples in the presentation. I, I use uh, several examples from multiple languages, but, but uh, the presentation is not, gear, is not uh, designed for a particular language because I think these techniques can really be used by any translator into English. Uh, it, it really, the, the gist of it is to encourage a sort of critical look at the sentence level and the paragraph level of what the translator is, is doing. And uh, uh, seeing if uh, this technique of flipping uh, nouns and adjectival constructions into verbs makes the sentence read more naturally in the target language, which is, in this case, is U.S. English. So you translate from several Slavic languages. Would you say that verbing is especially important for one of them compared to the others? I actually, uh, I do most of my work these days in Serbian and Croatian to English uh, rather than, than Russian, even though I am ATA certified Russian to English. Uh, but, uh, and then uh, I occasionally do some very light translation in some of the other um, uh, Slavic languages, so not at a high technical level, but uh, say personal documents. So I would say it's, it's hard to say whether one of the languages lends itself better to verbing than the other. Uh, as anyone who has studied uh, and knows Slavic languages knows, the, their structures are very similar uh, for the most part. And uh, I think these techniques apply generally well to all of these languages. A lot of it is going to depend on the, the source text, uh, the register of it, uh, you know, how the author has written the text. But uh, the Slavic languages uh, that I'm familiar with are all, they, they pretty heavily use the inya, uh, uh, nominal forms ending in inya and osts or nos. And uh, uh, whenever a translator sees a lot of these in a text, I encourage them to resist the, the urge to translate them all as nouns and to think of them, think of, think of the possibility of translating these into verb forms in English. And um, uh, also, um, uh, Slavic has a, a nice feature, you do see in other languages as well, but uh, uh, the adjectival forms that, are, that are, are often used in a very similar way into English, and uh, because English is so flexible, we can use those to reproduce a good result in the target language.
And let's see, I think I had a good example here from Russian. So in my presentation, uh, I've got a little excerpt from a, a drug study. And uh, if you'll, you'll pardon my Russian pronunciation, it is very rusty these days, but uh, the Russian reads that of the study drug. So there's a nice Russian phrase. And we have Isletabania, we've got the Pravierka, Vyazapasnas, Effectivnas, Pirinasimas, Priyom. Now, my example of a, a draft translation of this was uh, the goal of this study is the verification of the safety, efficacy, and tolerability of the study drug with administration two times per day in comparison with placebo. Okay, nominally correct, uh, and pardon the pun, and uh, uh, everything that is in the source is in the target. But it reads a little stiff. This is probably not the way a native English speaker would write this. And so my proposed edit, uh, 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 a better way to say this would be, the purpose of the study is to verify the safety, efficacy, and tolerability of the study drug taken two times per day compared with placebo. So in this example, we have changed pravierka, the verification to verify, to verify the safety, efficacy, and tolerability. Those are perfectly fine. They could be kept as nouns. And we've changed pripriomi to taken, taken two times per day compared with placebo. Uh, the, and the Russian says pasravninyu placebo. And we have uh, compared with we so we use a verbal form there instead of the nominal form. So we flipped in this example um, three three items. We flipped over into the verb category or verbal form category, uh, and we suddenly have an, an English target sentence that reads much more smoothly and is, does not distract the reader in any way. Conveys all of the information uh, and, and does not stick slavishly to the uh, Russian source. So my presentation is full of examples like this from a, a wide variety of languages. The Spanish and Portuguese are very notorious for these nominal phrases. German also uh, uh, is um, very, very nominal. And I spend a lot of time doing editing and uh, working with uh, uh, correcting translations where the translator is captured by the source text and feels like he or she has to translate an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, and that's really not what we want to do. We want to capture the meaning, but we need to do it in a way that does not distract the reader, in a way that reads smoothly, is faithful. We are not talking about editing or changing the, the, the uh, source in any way. That is not translation, but we are talking about achieving a smooth and readable text. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing the information with us. I, for one, am very excited about your session and will be lining up um, at the door on Saturday. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And again, uh, it's uh, based mainly for beginners and intermediate, but anybody is welcome. And, and I hope that everyone will uh, get, find something useful in the presentation. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank, thank you. you, Mike. Mm -hmm.
Hi, my name is Silvia D'Amico. I am a freelance translator working mainly from English into Italian, and I specialize in clinical trials and the translation of corporate material. Uh, currently, I'm also the secretary of the Northeast Ohio Translators Association, and I love being involved in the uh, translation industry in any way I can. My name is Catherine Christaki. I run Lingua Greca translations with my husband, who is also a translator. Uh, we translate mainly from English into Greek, and um, we specialize mostly in IT and my husband in gambling. Apart from that, um, I, I'm also part of some committees and other programs of the ATA. And I run uh, the Savvy Newcomer blog uh, for newbies in translation and interpreting. The other members of our panel are Yves Baudot, uh, who is a very well-known French to English translator. I'm sure most of your um, yeah. listeners will know her. And Christine Kim, she is a French and Italian into English translator specializing in uh, medical translation. The title of our session is Parents by Day, Translators by Night. Can they really do it all? <laughs> so it's, we're not supposed to say, of course not, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a subject near and dear to our heart because both um, Ekaterina and I are in the thick of it too. So we're really excited about your presentation. <laughs> That's great. Could you tell us a little more about um, the family background of all the panelists, because I, I think you mentioned that there are different ages of kids exactly. represented. Yes, I have uh, two kids. Uh, my daughter is three and a half uh, years old, and uh, my boy just turned two. So they're very little, and I am very busy with them, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, Kristen also has a three and a half year old boy. They're, our kids are actually a few days apart. They were born in the same month. Um, but she has a different background in terms of uh, work environment. She used to be an in-house translator and only, I, I think a year ago, she uh, turned to freelancing. Yves Badeau has uh, two boys who are teenagers, 13 and 16. So her experience and uh, needs obviously are uh, different. And then I'll let Catherine introduce her family background. Uh, I have one 13-month-old boy, so <laughs> new, very new to this. I know we only have two of you instead of all four, but I, I'd still like to ask, what is the most important thing that you would like all freelance or in-house translators or interpreters who are also parents to know? So... I think translation is a great career choice uh, if you're keen on spending as much time as possible with your kids from birth until daycare or kindergarten and beyond. Um, I, I, for one, remember uh, when I was very little, I really liked languages and started studying them from a very young age. And for some reason, I don't know, I guess seeing other people uh, having their kids raised by the grandparents, as is the a common practice in Greece. Uh, for some reason I said, I'm gonna be a translator when I grow up uh, because I want to be the one raising my kids and not, um, you know, having uh, someone else do that. Uh, so, you know, juggling full-time work and full-time parenting can be challenging and hard and frustrating at times, uh, actually at least a few times a day. 
but it's sure. yeah, <laughs> but it's it's so rewarding that it's definitely worth it. And um, I, I can't even imagine how it would be having to leave the house and the baby every day to go to uh, whatever office and do whatever work, uh, even if that was translation. The most important things uh, out of these, uh, you know, 13 months of experience that I have is uh, plan for twice as much time to complete translation projects as you did pre-baby. Uh, so know that you might miss a few deadlines, but um, as long as you deal with delays professionally, um, I mean, notify your clients in due time that you'll be late, then I think you'll be fine. And uh, of course, take full advantage of the baby's sleep and nap times, uh, which means early mornings and late nights, uh, if your baby's a good sleeper. And then another thing that I found very, very helpful is books. Um, so I've discovered there are endless books on every conceivable topic about, you know, starting with pregnancy and then giving birth and then the newborn and the first year and toddlers and so on. Uh, and every other topic in between. So their food, um, you know, um, baby led weaning, recipes, activities to do with your child for every age. And uh, I remember I even read the book about books for babies and toddlers, uh, <laughs> yeah, which were sorted per age, subject, theme, even on the baby's uh, favorite characters. So e everything is out there. And, uh, you know, most translators are book bookworms anyway. Uh, so, you know, the, the tip I would give is to start reading as early as possible. Uh, so as soon as you find out you're pregnant, uh, or that your partner is pregnant, and then treat it, I, I would treat it as a class, you know, as uh, like, like school minus the exams. But, you know, I read a lot of books while I was pregnant, and I think I was still completely unprepared when the baby came, uh, because back then I focused on books about pregnancy and the month-to-month -month ones, and I didn't even think of reading more about the months, uh, you know, to come after giving birth, and then the baby came a bit early. So, uh, yeah, some, some books. So read a lot of books, but um, have in mind that some of them might not be as useful. Some of them will be interesting reads, but that's it. And um, make sure to get it's, it's It's certain that you'll get something from each book, more things from one than another. And then for everyday tips, everyday things that you're not going to find in books, and even your doctor might not, might not not be able a good resource, and that was very unexpected for me, has been Facebook groups. So there are local parenting groups, uh, groups about babies born in your baby's month and year, groups on very specific topics, and, um, you know, it's a good source of information uh, and tips that only other moms can give you. And so, you know, these are, uh, it's from moms that are, even, even though they're not uh, in your country, even though they're not your age, but they do have a baby the same age as yours. And, uh, you know, their, their, their tips are recent. And, you know, out of, I don't know, 50 tips that you're going to find on any specific subject, at least one or a couple will be useful for you too. And yeah, you know, but, you know it's, it's social media, so just make sure you take everything with a grain of salt.
don't focus only on the one thing that someone will tell you on, on, on Facebook and triple check everything and at the end of the day confirm with your doctor. And that's it. Yeah, uh, this is great advice. In my family, um, my husband's the one who has a full-time office job and I'm the freelancer who also juggles the kids and I have two. One is six years old and the other is 19 months old. Aww. And I can say that uh, with our first one, it was definitely doable for me. It felt doable for me to study and work part-time. But then when the second one came and our both of our families are in Europe and we live in the U.S., I often, maybe it's sleep deprivation or tiredness, I often wonder, can this work long-term for those of us who don't have families nearby to help and who truly have to do it all on their own? Yes, uh, I think the answer to the question, to this question is yes, absolutely. And uh, it all comes down to what you value. Uh, if you, uh, if for your family, um, you prefer to uh, have your child go to daycare while you you know, handle your career and your work, then there are several options. If you prefer to raise your kids at home and uh, work from home at the same time as a translator or interpreter, there are also several options. So um, for me, I, uh, I think that being your own boss is great when you're raising a family because you're present, but you're taking also some time uh, off to from, from the family <laughs> to work. And, um, and, but uh, for me, uh, the important thing is to look and analyze your business. Uh, last year, I gave a presentation at the ATA conference in DC, and the topic was uh, work smarter, not harder. And I think that it's very important to see what works, what doesn't, what needs to be changed or improved. Because if we maximize our working hours, um, there are two uh, outcomes that are positive that work for our, for our family. Number one is that we increase our hourly rate and that can help us pay for childcare. Because sometimes we go, okay, so I'm working, but I'm also paying for childcare. Is that really worth it? Well, it is if you make 40, 50 or $60 an hour and you pay the babysitter 12 or 15 an hour, you're still making a good amount of money. And then the second reason is that you want to maximize your working hours because you want to free up your time to spend it with your family. And so if you know that you're being productive and fo focused on work um, and on profit generating activities, so for example, even if I only work part-time at the moment, less than 20 hours a week, I know that during that time, I'm giving 100% of myself to work while my kids are taken care of. And, uh, you know, when I'm free, I'm with them. I am a mom. I am, a, 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 you know, a cook. I am a activity a thinker and so on. And then another thing that's really important for me when you don't have family, families around is um, being able to delegate without feeling guilty about it. And I was listening recently to an audiobook. I'm, I'm not sure if it was the a Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs or a different book, but the author was saying that you need to divide every single task that you do in a day into tasks that you're bad at, tasks that you can perform but you don't enjoy doing, tasks that you're good at but they, and, and you enjoy doing, and then the tasks that you're excellent at and you love doing. And so by doing this sort of um, classification, you know where your time is going and you know that you can focus and spend as much time as you want with your kids and doing the job that you love while you delegate the other tasks without feeling too guilty about it. So for example, sometimes I get um, PDFs that um, are not editable to translate and instead of translating the PDF 
from scratch, I have somebody else type it out for me. So I pay somebody to type the English uh, PDF out in a Word file. And then I can work more efficiently because I put the Word file in a CAD tool. And so I'm working sort of less hours. I'm, I'm leveraging all my TMs, glossaries. So I'm just being more efficient and more productive uh, by delegating certain tasks. Uh, if sometimes I don't have time to cook, we get takeout and that's fine. We, know, we, don't, we don't have to feel guilty about it as long as we know that we're doing our best both with our families and our businesses. You know, the thing I have noticed coming up a little bit is the feeling that if you're not going in full-time or if you are juggling kids, especially small kids, and work, then it means you're not a really real professional. And therefore, it is a valid argument to say you're getting flexibility. Mm -hmm. You can work around your kids, but don't expect professional rates because you're getting the flex. Is you feel like you run into that at all, or you feel like this is not really the prevailing attitude? You know what? I've heard recently, um, I mean, I've seen more and more. My husband is in real estate, and there are a lot of real estate investors. There are super professionals, but they work less than 30 hours a week. And I don't think you have to compromise quality for um part-time and flexibility. I think you can have both as long as you are clear um, on where you're spending your time and, and, you know, and you're not messing around and wasting time. Um, I think that it is possible to do both. Okay, Katerina, where have you uh, noticed that trend? So who, who is it exactly that uh, has expressed this opinion that um, if you are if you're raising your kids at home, uh, which means you're probably working part-time, which means you probably take care of them, which also means that you probably can concentrate on your work. So it's not that very good quality. So who is it that expressed that opinion? Is it like a project manager or an end client who uh, maybe said? Well, I'm from Russia. So mm-hmm. Russia is, has this very special vibe of its own. Mm-hmm. I saw that mentioned in a newsletter uh, that I was talking about working with copywriters uh, on Russian like copywriting platforms. Uh, it went something like, the only people who are there are students or retired people or moms or stay-at-home moms with the implication that those people cannot provide quality. And then a very similar argument came up on Quora. I mean, Quora is scary. I did uh, like mining of different things people say about freelancers. Mm -hmm. And this is just mind boggling. Uh, For the majority uh, of the opinions stated there, it's either freelancers who can try to make a name on Quora or reps of different agencies located throughout the world who have tried to make their case saying, you know what, don't work with freelancers. They're flaky. They're stay-at-home moms and they will take your money and run. So this is not, this is not necessarily about part-time freelancers. You're saying this is um, an idea and a concept about general freelancing? 
Well, it started with freelancers in general are right and unreliable. And then in particular, for example, some people who are freelancing are, strictly speaking, not professionals. For right. example, the moms, at which well, point I was <laughs> I agree I was with shocked. that. In, I have a horrible experience with the freelancing web designers. None of them are reliable. None of them will, you know, do your website time. But but still, you know, we have to keep up with the times. And the, and the time that we live in is, uh, you know, uh, a time where most of us work from ourselves. We, are, we have our own businesses. And uh, we can really stand out by not being like that. And the other thing that I want to say is that, when I went from full-time to part-time, I didn't necessarily tell all my clients I'm going to part-time. I was just available less. So they just must have thought, oh my gosh, she's so busy that I better like send advance notice when I want to work with her or I better pay a better rate if I want to work with her. So I think that kind of worked a little bit to my advantage in the sense that I can be pickier and choose the jobs that I prefer doing rather than say I have to fill eight hours of my um, working day with some paying work. So I will just accept everything that uh, arrives into my inbox. Yeah, that's, that's, that's another big discussion. Um, I was uh, curating the new Twitter account translation talk last week. And uh, there was a discussion on, should we mention on our website um, that we have kids? So should we mention this in our bios? Because, you know, people were saying, um, I asked, I, I, I started a discussion uh, saying, uh, you know, mainly for our panel and saying, so those of you who are parents, um, the translators of you who are also parents, uh, you know, any tips that you can give that we can share with other people. And so that's when that discussion started that, I'm a full-time parent and I'm also a full-time translator. So one goes with the other. So on my website, I mentioned that I have kids. My clients know that I have kids. If I need an extension uh, for a deadline, most probably it's for, uh, it has to do with my kids. So I do mention this to my uh, clients. And um, so there was a whole discussion about this. If, um, if it makes sense to mention uh, if you have kids on your website. So th there, are, there are different thoughts on that. Uh, but one of the things that many people said was similar to what you said, Ekaterina, that clients and clients or, or even, I don't know, translation agencies, but mainly I think they were, they were uh, talking about end clients. They, they don't take it as professional uh, if on your website you mention you have kids or anything about your kids uh, or whatever. So, um, and so some people said, a few of my clients have said, don't put it on your website or take it out of your website. Or they've even told me in the few times, not me, uh, that uh, the people who said so on Twitter, that the few times they've mentioned their kids in whatever email conversation, they've said uh, they've warned them um, better not do that because it makes you look unprofessional, which I really don't understand. No, right. I think I think that um, it is just like when you're taking your kid on an airplane and you only get bad looks from 
you know, people who don't have kids because they don't understand, but everybody else is very sympathetic with the, the struggle of traveling with kids. And it's the same. If you just show your human side the, uh, to the project manager, yes, it can go either, or the end client. It can go either way, but most likely they'll just appreciate the honesty and see that, you know, you're also a human. You're not a robot. You're not a machine. And that's why they want to work with you. Of course. And what does that have to do with, well, so a freelancer and she's probably a stay-at-home mom and she's probably um, not the responsible, you know, professional. Yeah. Why? Yeah. I really don't understand that, really. And, you know, especially, I don't know, and specifically, specifically for translators, I mean, we are translators, we know it's it's a it's a hard to do profession we know it's not an easy craft uh so if, even people who are you know even amateurs who say i'm a translator i'm gonna try to be a translator i'm gonna try to do this it doesn't really work out for them so yeah. you don't really see that i mean I, I think so i'm not i can be sure but i don't think you see that many people who are you know stay-at-home mothers who are translators at the same time? They they if if you don't have people who weren't working before and are trying to find something to do from home uh, while raising their kids, I think they find something else, something easier, or I, I don't know something that doesn't require uh, that much of a linguistic background or or something else. I don't think I haven't I haven't come across that at all. It's a very interesting debate, and there are. I believe there's different sides to it too. I guess some people may be targeting clients who um, want to perceive them as a, as a professional and totally focused on the work that they do. And maybe they make a choice of excluding any mention of um, having kids on their, on their website. And others who believe that uh, people like to buy services from a person. And so the more you say about your uh, you as a person and um, and things like that, it, the clients may identify with you and feel more connected with you. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's, I guess there's both uh, reasons could be could be good reasons. Yeah. But I really look forward to your session at the conference. And thank you so much for joining us today and answering our questions. Of course, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Michelle Hansen. I'm a French to English translator. And I started out as a project manager many years ago for Berlitz Translation Services in Chicago, but I've been uh, freelancing for over 20 years. I specialize in medical, pharmaceutical, and global health translations uh, for pretty much that entire time. And I'd say that about half of my work comes from the medical and pharmaceutical side of things and like uh, medical journal articles and uh, clinical trial documentation. And the other half comes from international development organizations in the field of global health. So over the years, I've given a couple of presentations at ATA about the pharmaceutical and medical side. So I thought this year it would be really interesting to talk about international development. And I'm really glad to be joining Stephen uh, Volante and also Corinne McKay is going to be joining us on our panel this year. Hi, I'm Stephen Volante. And for the past... Uh seven years I've been a freelancer working in French and Spanish to English, um, specializing in medical translation, um, but also in 
a global health translation. And that's mostly because, to back up, I had worked in bilingual roles for many years and realized about 10 years ago that translation interpreting might be a way for me to find um, a better professional niche. And I was taking the series of interpreting courses at Boston University, which are half-day sessions on Saturdays over about 18 months. Um, and that uh, taught me a great deal, but it also put me very much in the right place at the right time because I connected with a research team at Partners in Health, a Boston-based NGO that was about to launch a study of tuberculosis transmission in Lima, Peru, and needed a translation of a large uh, study manual of procedures. And even though I was just a student, I had no experience. They took a chance on me, hired me as a temp. They liked my work. And then uh, before long they had hired me, I spent two and a half years there. I learned a lot about tuberculosis and global public health. And I really began to establish myself as a professional linguist. Um, so that, that's the background that I bring to this and that I, I'm looking forward to talking about today and in New Orleans. Great. And so the title of your session is? Mind your P's and Q's, uh, Translation and Interpreting in International Development. Great. Thank you. So uh, what does it take to translate and interpret in international development? Well, Stephen can uh, back me up or disagree with me here, but I would say two, two main things. And one of them is to have a real interest in or even a passion for the subject matter. Because in my experience, people who work in international development are quite passionate about their work. So they respond positively when a translator and interpreter also cares deeply about what they're doing. Um, and translation, I found, is rarely just a business transaction for this, these clients. So if you are looking to get into this field, you don't want to approach it with that mindset. Would, would you agree, Stephen? Yeah, I would agree very much. Um, this, I don't have a lot of experience working in other fields, but Michelle is exactly right that people who work in global public health are very dedicated and passionate. Many of them are seeking out some of the most difficult work environments where populations face the greatest disadvantages and challenges. Um, and they're trying to build the capacity to provide high-quality health care for those populations. Um, so all, anyone going to work as a linguist in this field should always keep that in mind. And it really is um, the progress that's been made over the last few decades in raising the quality of health care around the world with the results and benefits for patients is really exciting and interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. And I would say another thing, a uh, slight particularity to this area, although it's true in other areas too, is um, that many, if not most of the people who work in the international development sector speak more than one language. And maybe they speak the language that you've been hired to translate. So you really need to have confidence in your language abilities. I mean, we've all had clients in, in any area who say, oh, I would take care of the translation if I had the time. Um, and we understand that, of course, translation and interpreting require a skill level that a lot of people 
don't really have. But in this field, they may, in fact, <laughs> speak and write well enough to do, uh, if not our job, to do the job they need taken care of. So sometimes that's true. So uh, for that reason, you really need to have confidence in your own abilities to speak and write really well in the target language, and you need to be able to back up your translation decisions if they are questioned, because they may be questioned. Uh, I, I was, uh, somebody came back at me once with the w word data, um, and I wrote the data are, and they said, it's the data is, and I had to say, no, data is a plural noun, <laughs> and uh, the singular is datum, but people don't often use the word datum, so we would maybe say data point if you want to be singular, but it's something like that that they clearly understood and, and could write fairly well, but I had to um, completely back up and, and be able to talk about grammar or whatever it is to, sh to, to show that you are a professional in your field, which is writing or speaking communication, um, and not be intimidated by that. Um, and then it sort of, go ahead, Stephen. Oh, well, that, that's a critical point. And that's something that when I was just getting started and I went to work at an NGO, I was unprepared to deal with that. And I learned to deal with it over time. Um, and so the experience, the, the broad outline of the experience I had was that, as Michelle said, um, you often hear, well, I speak that language, so I would do this work, but I have to focus on other things. And then over time, as I demonstrated, um, you know, the competence, ability, the focus of what a professional linguist does, people began to say to me, now I understand you're a professional trained linguist, and I'm a bilingual person who doesn't have that training and professional experience. It's wonderful that they recognized it. Well, there was some frustration along the way. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. No, that, that, I agree. It, it, you need a thick skin, you need to be patient, and you need to be prepared to explain yourself. Right. And I think, of course, the frustration can go two ways, because in uh, their field, things may be moving kind of quickly, and, and uh, terminology changes. So if you, as the linguist, are, do not keep up with that terminology, that's a problem. Um, because these texts need to be not just error-free, uh, they're you know, writing to donors asking for funding or even content on their website. It has to be more than that. It has to be nuanced. Uh, you have to have an understanding of the domain, if it's infrastructure or nutrition or poverty reduction. And they also must be written diplomatically because development work by its very nature involves communication between unequal partners, at least in this one area. So one side is asking generally for technical or financial assistance from another party that has these resources. But in the communication, you have to be careful not to um, demean or elevate any of the stakeholders. Uh, everybody should be kind of on an equal footing and you have to be diplomatic and uh, maybe politically correct, which, which can be tricky. Um, so for example, years ago, we used to talk about the first world and the third world, and then we moved to saying developed and developing countries. Of course, increasingly, we use high-income, middle-income, low-income. So you'll see the abbreviation LMIC for low- and middle-income countries. Um, you'll see resource-limited countries or areas. And then I have some clients who prefer the global north or the global south. So there are all kinds of ways of just even referring to um, you know, these areas. And you have to keep up with that because some people will be uh, either particular about the terminology or offended if you, if you really use something different. So you need to be able to explain your decisions. You need to be able to communicate in a diplomatic manner. Is there anything else that would make working in this 
in international development less challenging? Um, well, I would just echo something that Michelle said a few minutes ago, and that's just your knowledge of the field. Um, and it is a field where there is just more and more information coming out all the time, like in the general media and from the United Nations and government. Developed world countries, uh, their governments all have agencies that are devoting substantial resources to this, uh, to various international development global health problems. Um, so there is, it, it can, I mean, I'm going to talk in a few minutes about some very specialized technical work that I did, um, but that, that's an example of what's out there and how you can, you can educate yourself and elevate your knowledge and competence and skill so you're able to, to demonstrate it to the client, which is critical as we were talking about a few minutes ago. So can you uh, mention some projects or a project that was uh, very satisfying for you as a linguist to work on? Okay, I'll, I'll start then. Um, I, one that comes to mind for me was a project I worked on maybe five years ago uh, with the International um, Public Health Umbrella Organization, and they were establishing the first public health institute in Togo, a country in West Africa. Uh, and it's like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC here in the United States. That's, that's the um, public health institute that we have. So <clears throat> it was a very interesting project generally, and it went on and off uh, for a couple of years as, as it took them to establish this facility. But soon after it was up and running, the Ebola outbreak of 2014 and 2015 hit the neighboring countries in West Africa, and no cases were reported in Togo. And I read an article about one, uh, from one of the newsletters I get on public health, and it credited the work of their new public health institute as being key to preventing the outbreak in their country. And of course, my role was infinitesimally small, but I was still really glad to have taken part in that, something uh, that was really important, I think. Yeah, and I, I can mention one of the most interesting things I did when I worked at Partners in Health. I, again, I played a small supporting role for a large-scale epidemiological study of tuberculosis transmission that was following uh, almost 4,000 tuberculosis patients and their household contacts in Lima, Peru, over three years, um, nearly 20,000 people in all. So those 4,000 uh, patients and many of their household contacts required uh, test laboratory testing for TB diagnosis and determinations of uh, drug sensitivity and drug resistance. So you can imagine the laboratory operations and logistics were quite complex. And I was in regular contact with a colleague in Lima, a microbiologist who was responsible for testing for the study. And two to three times a month, he had a one to two hour call with a consultant in Boston, also a microbiologist and an expert in TB diagnosis and drug sensitivity and resistance testing. So those two colleagues relied on me to interpret the calls, which delved into the details of how laboratory technicians prepare samples and conduct microscopy and culture testing to diagnose tuberculosis and determine drug sensitivity and resistance. Um, so that went on for about a year. And this was the one op this work gave me the one opportunity I had to get out from behind my desk in Boston and go to Lima, Peru as the interpreter for the consultant when he spent a week there um, 
meeting the lab staff and discussing, again, these technical issues of how they conducted tests and how they could ensure uh, accuracy and timely results. Um, so I got to go to Lima. I got to see the laboratory um, put on, it's a biosafety level three laboratory for tuberculosis testing. So it requires a coat, mask, uh, hood, hat, gloves, booties over your shoes. And there's a lot of loud machinery. So they're talking to each other, really shouting, and I'm interpreting in the middle of all that. But it was you know, very interesting. And then it gave me the opportunity to actually meet the people I've been reading and interpreting and translating about for over a year. And then later, uh, the study leadership decided that they needed direct control over lab operations because they'd been relying on an outside laboratory. So the solution they found was one devised in Southern, by TB researchers in Southern Africa, and that was to adapt a shipping container uh, that could be transported around on the back of a truck into a biosafety level three laboratory. And then that process of designing or, or discussions about how to design the laboratory, where to place equipment, how to get it from South Africa to Lima, consumed a lot more hours of um, conference calls, a more communications that required translation. Um, and I had left the job at Partners in Health when the team in Lima installed the lab. Um, but when we go to the ATA conference in New Orleans, I'm going to show a short uh, two to three minute video from the BBC about what the organization was able to do with that shipping container, um, doing state-of-the-art TB diagnosis, drug sensitivity and resistance testing, ensuring accurate results for their patients and starting them on the right treatment as soon as possible. So that, uh, that was one of the most rewarding things I was able to do, do in the two years that I worked there. Yeah. Well, wow. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, oh, the next question was supposed to be the horror stories about people taking interlingual communication for granted. I feel like we touched on this a bit. Mm -hmm. Michelle, do you have any stories of your own about people saying, eh, you know, I would have done it myself, but I don't have time for it? Very much so. Um, I would say a specific uh, document that I recall um, <clears throat> was a client, of course, tried to run something through a maybe Google Translate about malaria, the document, and um, have me edit the, the final product. They, well, actually, they were going to use it on their website, and then they read through it and said, oh, no, we can't. Uh, of course, it was terrible, but one particular thing stuck out uh, to me was that the word for malaria in French is paludisme, and the, the adjectival form for malarial, like a malarial area or a malarial disease, is paludique. But, or and, the word ludique alone means playful in French. So they had an OCR scanned document and ran it through a Google Translate, and it was filled with references to playful areas and playful disease. <laughs> and you can imagine, we're talking about something that's, you know, fatal and killing children and... <laughs> It was horrible, um, but then they had this, so it's, it wasn't just a typo, you know, it wasn't just a small little thing, and it, um, it of course, was, the rest of the document was pretty bad, too, but uh, we had to retranslate it from scratch, but they just, I think that was a, an education for them in that, um, you know, just a space between PA and then the rest of the word, ludique, you know, made it, it, made it horrible, without a translator would never have assumed those were two different words, you know, um, but I would just say, generally, um, the challenge of working with bilingual clients that they will want to perhaps 
edit your work and then they introduce errors into your document. And there are words in French like um, information, which is obviously information, equipment, which is equipment, but they are plural in French and they're singular in English. And then I would have non-native speakers, um, you know, change that in my English documents um, to a word that doesn't exist, informations doesn't exist, equipments, we don't say that. So um, things like that, it can, can be very frustrating. Uh, and I would just say one other one that I had years ago, I used to live in Indonesia and I studied Indonesian in college. So I used to translate Indonesian. I, I don't anymore. But anyway, in Indonesian language, like in ancient Greek, actually, <laughs> uh, the liver is the seat of your emotions, just like the heart is the seat of our emotions here for modern day English speakers. So if you wanted to say something like, do, I, I, you know, do this project wholeheartedly, you would translate that with the word liver, hati, in Indonesian. Um, and so when you're doing something figurative, the word for liver would tra be translated as heart. But of course, anatomically, it's still your liver. So there was a, a drug, uh, translation about a drug that could not be given to people with liver disease, and it was translated by a person as um, heart disease. So this was not a native speaker uh, who translated, not a native speaker of English, the document was going into English. Um, but that was, a, it was you know, potentially, again, a potentially deadly mistake that um, this, this people who, who were either at heart disease or liver disease would read this document and, and think that they were okay or not okay, and it was quite the opposite. So, again, a, you know, a conversation with the client and the importance of, of using uh, qualified translators, and, and that, that, that's how we sort of ended it. But, um, you know, thank goodness they ran it through, um, through me or through somebody else who was an English speaker because errors like that... Um, if you look at a dictionary, the word hati says both heart and liver, and you need to know which is the figurative and which is the literal. And that is really scary. <laughs> Amazing, right? Yeah. I also have a Google Translate story. <laughs> Lack some of the specific detail that Michelle just provided. But what happened to me was um, I was working on supporting the study in Lima, Peru from Boston. And a major Lima newspaper published a feature on the study, um, which my colleagues in Lima sent to me and asked me to translate so that the organization could put it on its, the news section of its website. So I had a regular flow of documents coming from Lima and I made a schedule to translate this article over four days while keeping up with everything else. I contacted an ATA certified translator I know to proofread my translation. And then after two days, someone in um, a colleague on our organization's communications team put a Google Translate version of the article on the website. Oh no. So someone pointed that out to me. You know, and as Michelle said, I mean, I, I don't dismiss machine translation now. You know, we have to be aware of it, the state of it now, and the, like the future direction. But this was seven, eight years ago. And it, you can imagine how clumsy and stilted and awkward it was. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, you know, my instinct was to hit the ceiling and get angry and call someone um, but I did actually didn't do anything. I just stuck to my plan um, over the, you know, my timetable. I completed the translation. Um, I actually, it went through, I, I was fortunate. I, I avoided one problem that Michelle mentioned where uh, the work, when your work goes or the people who review your work are not native English speakers or not qualified linguists, it can, it can open up 
that set of problems that Michelle described where they introduced mistakes into it. The person who, who proofread and approved my translations was a Harvard faculty member, a very accomplished uh, epidemiologist, specialist in tuberculosis who was from Peru, um, had been on the Harvard faculty for many years, who was fully qualified um, to review my work. And I never had a problem with any changes that she made to it. So anyway, getting back to the story, we fin I finished my translation. I had my ATA certified colleague proofread it. I had our, our epide Harvard epidemiologist um, read it and approve it. And then I sent that to the communications team. So I didn't, you know, I just said that, you know, this is the translation that they asked me to do for this. And that's what ended up on our website. And they took down the Google Translate version. Um, and that was around the time I started to hear that um, acknowledgement. Now I understand you're a professional trained linguist. I'm just bilingual. So. Wow, excellent. Yeah, there's nothing like seeing it with your own eyes, the difference. Right. Yeah. Well, this has been a very enlightening, and we're looking forward to your presentation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Perfect, thank you. Okay, yeah, thanks for giving us the opportunity. Hello, everybody. I'm Katerina Howard, the current SLD admin and the co-host of this podcast. And now I'm going to talk about my session and hopefully still make it interesting enough and worthwhile for you to come to the actual session of the conference. A little bit about myself. Um, originally from Moscow, Russia. Translate, marketing, copy. And at some point, I just couldn't resist the pull of copywriting and started digging around and found out lots of interesting stuff that I will share. You also have a very uh, fun and inspiring blog and a newsletter that makes um, us think outside the box when we run our business and, and promote um, our business as translators and interpreters. Uh, can you share a little bit about the reasons why it's important for us to learn from other industries? Well, first and foremost, and I only recently found this quote, is apparently lots of inventions happen when people from other industries kind of took ideas and implemented them within their own industries. I didn't know about that, but this is a thing apparently. And also because I think that many times if you're just starting out, you end up reinventing the wheel. You're like, well, how do I do this? Maybe I should do it this way or that way. And if you look at what other people are doing, maybe you'll find a better way than you could have come up with yourself or even better than most people are doing. Yeah, who knows? That is true, as uh, we tend to look at what the others did before us and then base our offering on those things. You often give examples from other industries um, in your blog and newsletter. How do you find this information? Honestly, I'm not going out of my way to find it. I just follow lots of people on social media and I listen to podcasts a lot. And then I'm, I get really excited about that stuff and start trying to share it. Can you recommend some of these resources and books um, 
that are not necessarily related to translation and interpretation, but other professions? Yeah, sure. I actually created a list beforehand, so I don't forget anything. Right? Um, first and foremost, probably Hotjar's The Human Strike Back podcast. Hotjar is a tool that lets you uh, get heat maps and get feedback from website visitors and really like it. Uh, but they also do the podcast, which is, it, it sounds very sort of sci-fi, human strike back, but it's really about making business more about people, putting people first. And I feel like this is something that kind of is not happening in the translation industry a lot. And probably one of the reasons why people are sometimes so resentful and angry and unhappy with the way things are working out for their translation career. Like nobody wants to be called dear vendor or dear resource. So there is that. Another thing that I see a lot is that it's really scary to be you online, especially if everybody else in your specialization has very professional sounding websites that are not really personality driven. So the thing I recently found was uh, Hillary Weiss positioning statement framework, which kind of gives you this impulse to at least start talking about things you care about and change it from what everybody says to the things that matter to me. Also Hillary answers emails. And <laughs> I think that's really nice. Yeah. Like sometimes I respond to newsletters like, yes, and I see this in the translation industry. Like this headline is so generic. I don't even know what they're doing. And sometimes people answer and it's always so nice. People notice you, right. respond yeah. to you. You're human. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Right. And before we move on to the next question, the last one I would recommend to everybody is copy hackers. And they have a whole bunch of video tutorials. And if you're trying to write for yourself, like setting up a website or trying to like rewrite your profile, I would really recommend going through the seven sweeps and there'll be links in the show notes because this makes you sort of focus on the argument you make in your profile or website copy. And instead of saying, well, I do this. You kind of have to start thinking about why does it matter? So what? Or prove it. I guess one of my numerous pet peeves is people saying, I add value. Well, that doesn't really tell me anything. What kind of value do you add and why should I care? Okay, rent over. <laughs> okay, and one more resource. Well, not the resource, more like an actionable tip. You don't need to follow like professional industries for inspiration for your business. Like the best positioning statement I have heard is actually from uh, the track podcast. Oh, yes. So interview with Joe Hofberg, who is a Lindy Hop dancer. So I dance Lindy. And so I listen to Lindy dancers talk about themselves. And the way she described her and her partner's dancing style is, we are not the kind of um, dance couple who will perform to the great balls of fire. And I think it's amazing, not because, well, it's amazing for several reasons. First, it's that we are not this, which already sets you apart. 
like I don't know why everybody has the same services on like on their websites, but most often they do. So just I'm not doing that. And second, it's an inside reference. So if if you're not dancing in the you're like, well, what does this even mean? Uh, but what they're saying is that we are so technical and musical and interested in sort of going deeper that the the stuff people do at state fairs say and just do rapid, super fast Lindy Hop, that's not us. We're doing something completely different. And well, it's implied that it's more advanced. Uh, yeah, I already added a link to an example of how they dance. And that's my LinkedIn inspiration of the day. Now, this is very useful. And speaking of the copy hackers, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think you're certified. They have a training program you went through or? Uh, well, it's not certified. It's just I uh, listened to the course and I passed okay. the test they have. It's not a certification per se. Yeah. Yes. So something you recommend to other translators to consider? I don't know. Um, it's very copy oriented. So mm -hmm. if you want to write, like you want to do copywriting, then absolutely yes. Oh my God, run and give them money. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're sort of looking for ways to, you know, when I started out, I felt a lot like I'm just flailing around and don't really know what to do and how to build my day in a way that I'm not, that it's not like 9 p.m. and I haven't done any marketing yet. And I'm like, well, I need to do marketing. But I don't yeah. know what to do. So I'm just not going to do anything. And, and then you start doing research and you become paralyzed by all the advice that's out there. And then one year later, you're like, okay, um, <clears throat> still haven't done any marketing. <laughs> so that's, that's probably kind of like business foundations course. That would be more useful. You have um, an MBA. You probably know more about it than that. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. I do. Yeah. Um, what uh, do you think are the most important skills and qualities for a freelance translator nowadays? Being able to adapt and <laughs> change. Because as like I was talking to somebody, like I had an email exchange and. Uh, the gist is that sometimes you just don't even want to call yourself a translator, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it, you might feel like it's your calling, like it's the thing you want to do, but other people hear translator and think, well, you know, my secretary could do that. Mm -hmm. Or, I don't know, Google Translate is just good enough for me, so... Or mm -hmm. that you're just, you know looking upwards in the dictionary and don't necessarily do anything worthwhile other than, you know, memorizing those words. So I think that being able to sort of see the profession from the outside and get out of the uh, infamous translation bubble. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, that is so true. I agree. So back to your presentation at the conference, uh, will you be sharing a list of tips or action points with your audience? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm a procrastinator slash obsessive collector of material. 
what I would like to do is to sort of start a conversation about like the industry in general and how we're sort of limiting ourselves in a way uh, just by sort of being very rigid and like we have the sacred truth about how to do things right and by the way it's interpreter not translator mm-hmm. and then you're just sort of stuck in a way that is counterproductive maybe and I also feel like just being able to go from this generic you know love your translator respect your translator and interpreter of course which is a totally different thing because you don't want to fail in a spectacular and public way is maybe not the right approach for some industries and that we could maybe stop doing that a little bit (laughs) yeah But that sounds great. I'm really excited about your presentation and I encourage our listeners to um, attend it too. Thank you so much, Katya. Yeah, thank you. I am Mercedes Gull. I am a translator uh, of books from English into Spanish and I will be presenting a session in uh, New Orleans ATA conference uh, with the title Translating Books, A Race for Endurance Runners, Parts 1 and 2. I came to be a translator uh, by chance, I think. Uh, I was studying uh, philosophy and literature at the university and uh, I started my first job outside university and it was in a publishing house and part of my duties was to translate. And I liked it so much that after two years, I decided to become a freelance translator as uh, the other editorial duties that I had, like editing and proofing, didn't appeal to me as much as, uh, as translation. So I became a translator, but I was too young to get translations from publishers. I was interested in uh, book translation. And well, some publisher said to me, well, you know, you are uh, 22, 23 years old. Uh, I don't think you are qualified to to translate a book. Uh, A literary translator must be someone over 40. So I decided that uh, I needed to do some more studies. And I did a a master's degree in translation studies in Great Britain, and it was about 20 years ago. And it turned out to be a very important year for me uh, during that master's program because uh, I got the tools I needed uh, in order to know why I was translating something in a certain way and not in another way. So after that, I felt I could start teaching translation at universities and training translators. And well, it really helped me get clients and uh, help publishers believe me that I could be a translator. So, and after that, I've been translating books for almost 30 years, mostly in children's books and uh, young adult uh, fiction, but also essay for uh, university presses, uh, research, all sorts of books. And um, uh, for a long time, I worked in, uh, you know, this series for dummies. I did 
about 10 for dummies books. So that's me in a nutshell. Oh, that's great. But you did not have to wait until you turned 40 to translate a book, right? No, no. I'm, uh, I really wanted to prove this uh, man wrong. But with time, and uh, as I was approaching 40, now I'm approaching 50. But uh, as I was approaching 40, I think he's right in, uh, in some ways. I mean, in translation, you really become, or at least in book translation, you really become better with age. It's like, uh, I don't know, like a wine or something like that, that you really need some age and experience to be better. So it's more age or more experience, what do you think? In some way, uh, experience go, goes with age. So, so I think that both of them, because uh, the other thing, uh, thing that I think is, is interesting to point out here is that a translator of books has to be really competent in uh, writing and composition. So uh, you really get better at that with more age. I mean, the more you read, the more you have the chance to write or you write for yourself, you become a better translator. Thank you. That totally makes sense. Could you walk us through an average book translation project? How long does it take? How do you divide up the time? Well, I think that it's difficult to think of a book project as uh, some sort of um, uh, universal framework that you can apply to every book because there's a lot of difference between, for example, translating fiction and translating literary nonfiction or translating uh, just plain nonfiction, something like a recipe book or, or something like that. Uh, it's still a book. Some of the steps you take are uh, more or less the same, but it, it is very different and it, it depends on the, on the kind of, of book, on the particular book you are translating. But I think that the main point is that you get a call from a publisher or either you find a publisher for a project that you would like to work on. In my case, I've only worked with publishers uh, finding me for a particular project. And then what I do is I, I read the book, first of all, from uh, beginning to the end. But I, I know I have met translators and very experienced and reliable, fine translators who don't read the book before starting. For them, translating is like a way of uh, decoding and understanding the text. And um, if you have studied uh, Latin or Greek, you may uh, be able to understand this way of working. As when you are uh, taking Latin, learning Latin, what you do for understanding a text in Latin is translated. So I think that that's a, a good way of doing it too. Uh, if you have the brain uh, machinery to do it that way, I prefer it the way I've learned to do it. I, I just read. And while I'm reading, uh, I start doing research for particular terms or for expressions that seem to be tricky or metaphors, figures of speech, wordplay, references and all that and after I have uh, everything clear I start translating. Sometimes I find uh, things that I left 
without research and I have to do it. Well, it is that sometimes the, the whole thing overlaps a bit because I, I do a, a first pass of reading and then every day that I'm going to translate, I read the whole amount that I'm supposed to translate that day in order to translate it. So it's like reading two times, uh, but the first time from beginning to end and the next time by bits. And... Um, after I finish translating, I start doing the revision and editing, proofing, and all that. I know that there are people who uh, do lots of readings of their own translation. Uh, I'm afraid I have to say I don't. I, I do one or two readings of my uh, translation. Usually, when you work for the publishing industry, there is someone that is going to read and check your translation after you. So I try to submit a finished uh, product. I mean, the, the text is finished, but I always have someone else to read. And sometimes that extra pair of eyes can find things that I didn't see and uh, we get some sort of uh, communication so why did you translate the name of that uh, character this way and not this other way or things like that and it it is quite interesting that that part of uh, let's say that after translation there's a stage where you work a little bit in uh, in things that can be tweaked and uh, and changed but I think that the important part here is that a translation of a book involves more than just how many words can I do in a day. Because there are stages in that translation and steps that don't involve translation itself, but reading, research, and they take a lot of time. It is true that this, this part many people can underestimate. Could you share with us about the most research-heavy book translation project you have ever worked on and how it unfolded? I think I'm going to share two examples if we have enough time because this shows how, how different and how uh, varied can, can be the translation of books. For example, I have one translation. It was a PhD dissertation of geography and it was, I mean, it, it had a lot of specialized terms that I could have researched, but then I wouldn't have been uh, so sure that there were the specific terms needed for that context. And then there, uh, all the, it had two chapters, one of them on, on methods and the other one on results that were tricky for me because it, they involved um, statistical and mathematical methods that I was not very close to, and I didn't understand them very well. So fortunately, I was close to the author, and we could work together, first uh, compiling a glossary of terms uh, from English into Spanish, and uh, he was uh, fully bilingual. He had done his PhD in, um, in the States, but he had studied geography before in, um, in Spanish, so, so that was no, no problem. And he also explained to me all the, the methods that I needed to understand in order to translate. And then he read the whole translation and did some changes and asked me about the translation. So when you have a, an author like that one that can help you with all the technical matters that might be problematic, well, that's, that's the best uh, you can do. 
but sometimes you don't have that. And uh, we're not talking about research, but we're talking about fiction. And I think the most difficult book I have translated was a fantasy novel where um, there was a subplot about a pirate ship and there was a lot of description of what was going on during navigation, sailing, because it was a sailing ship. And um, I, I realized I needed terms, uh, nautical and uh, navigation terms that I really didn't know. When I was a teenager and before that, I read uh, Jules Verne and I could understand the words in Spanish, but it was difficult to read the whole thing in English and try to turn it into Spanish. So what I did was that I tried to find in my, in my own library at home, I tried to find uh, which books could help me just to, to get into the context of navigation of sailing ship before the age of a motor ship. So what I found was Herman Melville, and I, I read Melville, and I discovered that Melville was too modern for what I wanted to translate, because it was closer to pirate ships in the 17th century. So I tried to find anything in the internet, and uh, then I discovered that internet has a uh, blanks and areas where you can't find much information. So for example, if you if you want to know about the inner workings of a Spanish uh, galleon or a Spanish carabela or a, a schooner, uh, there, there is no much information. So what I did was that at some point I decided, okay, this is fantasy. And I don't think the author went so far as to check, I mean, that she didn't have a, a specific idea for the ship. This is just a, a vessel that is a sailing ship and, and I can just make it uh, my own. And then I found a dictionary. It was a trilingual dictionary and it was all by chance. It was the uh, mid-19th century trilingual dictionary of navigation, sailing and nautical maritime terms uh, that helped me a lot. And it was in the internet, yes, but it was a um, facsimile edition of, um, of a dictionary. And uh, it was great. But um, I think that chance had a lot to do here with this, uh, with this book. And it was the research and documentation part was so interesting that I, I wrote a, a little piece that I published in my blog because it, I learned a lot doing that and not just uh, on the specific uh, pirate ship and sailing terms, but, uh, but of how to do research. So what do you wish someone would have told you when you were embarking on your first book translation project? Well, that's a, that's a difficult question. I have to say that uh, the first book I got went so smoothly, perhaps because I never uh, thought of it as a translation to be published. It was more like, um, like an exam for, um, for en entering the, the publishing house that I was going to work in. So it was great just to, okay, go and translate this and tomorrow you will give me the translation. And um, it was like, a, I don't know, it was like a game for me. But there are things that I think that it, it would have been good to know. So 
I, I wish that someone had told me that editors sometimes don't know much about what translators do. And I wish that there existed more opportunities for exchange of opinions uh, between editors and uh, translators. Sometimes editors think that translators are just, I don't know, you, you take that thing and, and you get me the whole bunch of pages into, into Spanish or whatever, and they don't have to worry about how the whole uh, work is going on. And the same is true for uh, translators, because we sometimes we don't think we have to ask questions to, to work, to do our own translation in the best way we can. So let me give you an example. When I was a beginner, I had been a freelancer for about a year or so. I translated a book. It was my second or third book. And it was a report from a group of experts about global environmental issues and sustainability. And after I submitted the text, and I, I thought the translation had gone okay, all the research part and uh, the kind of vocabulary that I needed to use and all that was more or less okay. And I got a call from the editor and one of the authors was a Latin American expert and he was vetting the translation and he complained of the poor quality of the Spanish text in terms of style and composition. It was, he said it was poorly written and um, I was really surprised. I, I didn't know what to do, and I was afraid I was going to lose uh, that client and to have problems with them and with all the other editors related to this publishing house. But the editor said, okay, let's sit down and have a, a thorough look at the original, and then we'll go to your translation. And we realized that of uh, the group of authors, none of them were native speakers of English and that the original was also um, poor. I mean, not, not the best uh, English composition was there and the, the style and uh, lots of repetitions and things like that. And I didn't notice that so clearly until he asked me to do that. Uh, but fortunately, uh, he understood the problem. It was the the bad combination of a faulty original and a novice translator. And he asked me to go over the translation at home and rewrite and improve whenever needed. If the editor had looked at the book before giving it to me, um, he might have been aware of that. So he could have told me, uh, you know, the, the original is not that good and we're going to have one of these guys checking the translation. So make sure that uh, it sounds good. Write it in good Spanish style. And uh, that's what I did. So after that, I learned to ask lots of questions concerning the, the book and the circumstances around it and the circumstances around the translation, what the editor wants and uh, what the uh, audience and readership uh, is expecting and uh, so and so. So I think that that would be my, the, my, my wish that someone had told me that, uh, that a book is not uh, flawless and not everything is correct and that you may find uh, room for improvement and for correcting. And that's definitely a very valuable advice, um, especially to beginners in this field. Um, 
Speaking of your workflow, um, how do you organize and manage your time in a day when you work on a book translation project? Well, I think that um, book translators work in a very, very different way from from any other uh, freelance translator because we don't we are not working in in several projects uh, simultaneously uh, my days are much alike uh, one to the other for several weeks so what i do is that i plan uh, a goal for uh, for uh, every day so in my case it is uh, something between 2000 and 2000 and, uh, and and 500 words per day and i try to do that uh, during the part of the day where my little kid is not at home sometimes that means that i have to work really fast and sometimes I can work a bit more in the evening and while he's doing his, uh, his homework. Uh, but I prefer not to count on having an extra, extra two hours uh, after, after he's gone to bed because I'm tired too. And there is, there is another thing that uh, people don't take into account when thinking of uh, translating a book. And it is that if you have to do 2,000 or 3,000 words a day, uh, four to five days a week for two or three months, sustaining that pace means not translating more one day because the translation muscles are going to be overexerted and you won't be at your best on the next day. So for example, if today I find that I can translate I don't know, 4,000 words. And I say, okay, I did more than I was expecting. Tomorrow I will be tired. And not tired in, in terms, I mean, it's, it's a very uh, difficult to explain the kind of, of um, exhaustion that you get because it's not a physical. Sometimes your hands may ache, fingers. But it's, it's just like your uh, mental dictionary is not working or, uh, or your... Um, ability to to write properly and uh, with the figures of uh, style and all that they just don't come to your to your mind so you need to ensure quality all over the text and that means keeping your intellectual and physical efforts in balance not going over it and not saying uh, a lot under it because as you translate what what you were aiming to do, it's like when you warm up before uh, practicing some sport. So you are uh, at your best shape and condition. So what I think is important here is that you have to know your limits and plan your daily work according to them. For a while, I used to teach at the same time as I was translating books, and that was great. But the problem was that when you got homework to to mark, uh, it was very difficult to get enough time. And sometimes I got mixed up the translations I was uh, correcting and uh, the translation I was doing. So... Um, I, you need you need something special to be able to to jump from one project to another when you are dealing with books, and I think that's my day or my string of days until the the book is over. When you are getting ready to deliver the translation and you are reviewing it, do you feel like it's a bit different from the actual translation, or you need to 
put in the same boundaries to not, over, to not overextend yourself. In terms of, like, I really like the analogy you used, or translation muscles. Uh-huh. So, like, not to make yourself too tired. And... Well, the, the thing is that since I start, I try to organize time uh, in order not to be overworking uh, at the end. So what I do is I translate the whole thing and I usually get the last week or the last two weeks just for going over the translation reading. And one of the things that really consumes a lot of time is inserting the corrections because what I do is I print the whole text and I read the whole text and mark whatever I need to mark and then I have to insert all those marks and corrections in the file in the word file that I'm working in and sometimes that can be tricky because it's a very mechanical work so I I, I just get tired you know? so sometimes I need to to put the music on and turn up the volume so that I uh, that I'm still uh, awake and that I'm not uh, missing or missing one of the corrections because uh, I have 10 in the same page or something like that but but usually I I can deliver on time or sometimes what I do is that I set my deadline for a Friday and if I find out that I need a little more time, I ask to deliver on uh, on the following Monday. So I get the the weekend to work. And having a small a small kid, I, I can't uh, I can't work the whole weekend, but at least I have some like uh, four hours or five hours to finish whatever is is needed to finish. But I try to plan my time carefully because uh, otherwise uh, I will I will just collapse. Yes, it is very important to take care of yourself, um, especially if you have other responsibilities. Do you have any tips or advice for those who wish to get started on this path but feel intimidated? Uh, yes, I think I do. If you want to, to work in uh, book translation, I think that y you should learn as much as you can about the workings of the book industry. So I would say that um, spend some time learning editorial crafts, uh, working as a junior editor, uh, so that you understand the, the role of the translation in the whole book industry process. Because in some way, producing a book is, is like teamwork, but it is weird because the team never gets together. So it's like a sequential teamwork because it goes from one person that and that person finishes one stage and then it goes uh, the book goes to another and another and another but the work that you do will be important for the next one and the next one and the next one so it is good to understand how the whole thing works so as a translator i like to get in touch with the editor and know what is expected from me and i expect that the person doing the revision, vetting, or proofing will get in touch with me if, if the need arises, if there's something that needs clarifying or, or that I get, at least that I get notice of changes that will be done because some reason that I didn't take into account. 
So I would say that you need to know how the industry works so that uh, the translator doesn't act as if he or she were in an isolated cell, but uh, with more people working around. And my second advice would be to read and write in your target language. As you are going to write a book, I mean, translating is writing a book. So you need to get familiar with the ways of writing in your own language with uh, different text uh, models. You need to imitate styles at some point. For example, when you are translating from English into Spanish, uh, as uh, dialogue is uh, very common in English literature and not so common or, or didn't used to be common in, uh, in Spanish literature. So we were not used to writing dialogue at, or not at a literary level. So you need to learn to write dialogue until it rings natural and true. And, and you really need to, to read. If you're going to translate books, you need to love books. So I think that that would be it. This is wonderful. Thank you so much, Mercedes. We look forward to your presentation at the conference. I hope to see you there. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. No, you're welcome. Both of you. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. I'm Evandro Magalhães. I am a conference interpreter. I have been for almost 30 years, and I've also been a chief interpreter in the United Nations system. For seven years, I was the chief interpreter of the International Telecommunications Union, and so I've been on both sides of the counter, and I'm presenting on a subject. Well, the title of my presentation is Seven Things a Chief Interpreter Wishes You Knew. Thank you so much for joining us. Perhaps for non-interpreters such as myself, could you tell us a bit more about what goes into recruiting and staffing international conferences? Recruiting uh, interpreters for an international organization is, entails a lot more than one would think at first, because it's not just a matter of getting you know, a couple of, and a handful of interpreters into booths, but you have to have thorough understanding of the whole dynamics of how the UN operates, particularly if I'm talking about a, a UN organization. So some of the booths have to have specific passive and language requirements looked into. And you also need to take very good care of the Arabic and Chinese booths, for example, if this is something you're doing in the six languages, so as to minimize relay. So for example, English and French, those two booths, they have to be quadrilingual. So any interpreter in the English booth has to have passive French and in addition, either Russian or Spanish as a passive language. The same is true in French. And then you have to coordinate the shifts <clears throat> in such a manner that if one of the person who has say French is out washing her hands during that shift in the French booth, you're gonna have someone with that ability at that particular point in time. And that's why they change at very specific timings and so on. So I remember when I joined the UN being appalled <laughs> by, the, by the, the difficulty of, uh, you know, first of all, by the, you know, being surprised at the many things that I, I had to, to keep uh, running at, at the same time in order to 
have a successful meeting take place. So it's a lot more technical and a lot more detailed than one would think at first. We are so excited to have the chance to speak with you now and um, you have so much experience to share. So without disclosing too many secrets from your upcoming presentation at the ADA conference, can you give our listeners some piece of advice that you feel is important for interpreters? Yes, but it's hard not to to spill the beans uh, too much if I'm, because I feel uh, encouraged to say a lot more because I want to share. But I can say this, interpreters have to be very careful about what they believe quality to be. So we as linguists, we tend to think of quality as linguistic ability, as, you know, it's something that's performance-based. So we work very hard on our hard skills in order to become the best interpreters that we can. And this very often is what dictates our difficulties in the market later on, because we fail to understand that in the eyes of the recruiter, package is a lot more than just those hard skills. And you have to do a lot more than you don't realize is even in the package. If somebody doesn't tell you or if you haven't been around long enough to start slowly realizing these things. So by putting together the, the seven or so tips that I've developed and that I packaged, so to speak, in my article that then became a workshop and now has become a talk at the ATA, I want to give my colleagues the ability to bypass some of the hard learning that would otherwise have to take place. So basically the big piece of advice that I would give is try to think about quality through the eyes of those who hire you. That's a big thing. So during interpreter training, the soft skills don't really come into play for most people? Yeah, the soft skills are absolutely necessary. It's funny because when you're developing as an interpreter, you must have total control of those hard skills. You have to, to be the best interpreter you can be. This is how you get through school. This is how you get through your finals. This is how you get through the tests that you will necessarily have to take. For example, if you want to become a State Department interpreter, you will be put through a very rigorous set of tests. If you want to work for the European institutions, it's going to be the same. You also have to take the competitive exams if you want to work for the UN. So you have to be on top of your game. But that's just getting your foot in the door, establishing yourself as an interpreter. Career-wise, in order to really fuel your career and make a name for yourself and, and, and build enough credibility out there, the soft skills after that first phase become a lot more important than those hard skills because this is how you develop into relationships, which is what is going to take you further in your career. The hard skills are just an entry point. Would you mind telling us of some sort of examples from real life, if possible, that illustrate your point? Yeah, like you're looking for some career fails, I guess? Yes. I've never had those. I'm a perfect interpreter, you see? Well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, from other people's lives. <laughs> no, I mean, there's, there's no interpreter out there who hasn't made a fool of himself or herself and on one given occasion, and I'm no exception. I'm, I was just pulling your leg. Uh, basically, the, the biggest, you know, the epic failures that you have to, to live through in order to learn your craft and, and move forward are usually terminology-based, right? It's, you know, you're starting out and you're, you're having a hard time dealing with a certain subject matter 
and you're being pushed into corners that you haven't prepared for and all sorts of curveballs are thrown your way. And I've been in those situations. I remember, for example, in one particular case, and I was lucky because it never fell on my lap, but a colleague and, and myself were in the booth and it was one of those tabletop booths that can only accommodate one interpreter at a time, only one working workstation, very impromptu kind of setup. And it was a medical congress, and it was a Korean doctor who absolutely didn't speak English and who was presenting in English because Korean was not covered. Somebody had trained him in how to deliver a speech that he had in front of him on paper. Somebody had given him some basic training on how to pronounce the words, but nobody could understand a single word of what he was saying. And people in the audience who spoke English were also at a complete loss. And we were struggling trying to, to hang in there. It's one of those 10 to 15 minute presentations. And then after one or two minutes, when they realized that we were struggling, my colleague was struggling, they provided the, the copy of the speech. And, and again, my colleague didn't know whether he should read from the paper or, or continue uh, to just try and, and understand what was being said and so on. And eventually at the end of the uh, presentation, the president of the Congress was in the room and went straight to our boss back then. This is like 30 years ago almost. And said, I was in room such and such. I couldn't understand a word of what was said. I want those two interpreters kicked out. And I was on my way out the door when I actually said, well, let me say something in my defense. In my defense was to say, hey, I never got to speak any word. I, I never had, had, you know, got to say any word because the, uh, the booth only accommodated one of us at a time and we didn't have time to do the switch. I'm not implying that I would have done anything better. If anything, I would have failed even at a more epic scale. But uh, it was just out of luck. I was not there, so I was spared. But I've seen that happen, you know, mutatis mutandis, uh, with a number of colleagues in a number of, of situations. Because when you're first starting out, you're pushed into situations that are totally unprofessional, particularly in Brazil, where I was, you know, making my debut. And you don't realize you don't know any better. So I've been left in the booth alone in a medical congress for hours on end. And I had to fend for myself. I, for example, spent a whole presentation, again, a 20-minute presentation, making up a different name for gallbladder because I didn't know what gallbladder was. So that tells you how, how imperfect my knowledge of English was back then. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that sounds horrifying, <laughs> but we've all, horrifying. we've all been there. <laughs> I don't want to go back there, no. <laughs> um, thank you so much. To sum up this discussion, um, do you have any examples of uh, mistakes that beginner interpreters just have to make in order to learn sort of a rite of passage? Mm, the rite of passage that I can think of doesn't relate to mistakes. But it relates to that moment in time where you, against all odds, where you're feeling your weakest, decide to give yourself credit and decide to trust your instinct for the first time. Because you start out with someone in the booth that is senior to you, and you're the junior for a long time, and everything you say, you look up to that person for validation and so on. And you're terrified. I was terrified. I remember having to go for breathing breaks outside of the booth in the beginning when I was starting out 27 years ago in Brazil. And even when I went uh, really, when everything went uh, really well and I did a good job, 
I beat myself up on the thinking that I was just lucky, right? I'm, I'm, I'm no good. This guy is good. I'm no good. So every day I thought, even if, if it was getting better, that I was simply using up my luck reserve and that disaster was going to happen on the next morning, right? And then one day you start to realize that I'm, I'm going to stand for myself. So one day you go in the booth and you start to, uh, you make a decision, at least that was uh, so in my case, you make a decision to say, well, I must be doing at least something right because I've been doing this for say a year now and that disaster that I feared hasn't really happened. So one day you decide to say, I'm not looking up anymore. I'm owning my own mistakes. If they happen, I'll take them back. I will apologize, and, but I will own the interpreter that I am. I'll go forward with what I have and what I am. And that was for me at least the rite of passage. And I found that to be validated in some of my students later on and people whom I had a chance to coach. And they all seem to have had a moment in time when that happened too. Thank you so much. Um, this was very interesting and we look forward to your presentation at the conference. My pleasure. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to allow me to give you this glimpse into what I'm going to talk about. And I look forward as much to this. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the conference. We hope to see you then.